wonderful, wonderful morning. I'm really grateful that uh, I get to be part of what is going on, and uh, I'm, I'm glad uh, you're here too. I'm trying to line up here because I think if I get all crooked, I'm going to mess up the video people. So welcome to those of you who are uh, watching us online, and pardon me for just a minute. I don't usually call people out, but I know Elise Hicks is watching from Honduras, so welcome. <laughs> we love you, and uh, <laughs> we're uh, glad to be serving alongside of you. Listen, I have uh, come on a passage of Scripture that is way too big to cover in one week, and you know sometimes we do that as we're going through large sections of Scripture. But I want to begin with a question. Have you ever been in a relationship with somebody that you couldn't personally be with regularly? Now, I know that's happened to, to some of you routinely uh, throughout your careers, but uh, I remember the days that my wife and I were dating I graduated a year before she did from Bible college, and we spent a year dating long distance with uh, telephone calls and snail mail, because I don't even know if we had email back then. But at any rate, um, we didn't see each other very often, every once in a while, because I lived like eight hours away, and uh, so... I would drive down occasionally throughout her senior year, and it just was not the same, right? It's just not the same when you don't get to be with this person that is so important in your life. I know some of you who have served in military service are well aware you're like, one year? Boy, poor guy, right? I mean, <laughs> you have spent years of your lives separate from each other because of your uh, commitment to our country and assignments that you have uh, been involved in, and you have been unable to be together. It's, it's, the reunions are precious, but especially when you know it, even that is short-lived because it won't be long before you have to be separated again. It's just not the same. I want to remind you this morning that that's a bit like the Christian life, right? We have a relationship with someone that we don't get to see face-to-face -face right now. There's a reunion coming, but it isn't yet, and we are in the in-between time. And very similarly to the Israelites, they were, uh, in, in one passage of Scripture, it is described that going through uh, the, the uh, Red Sea was a baptism of sorts. They were between their baptism and the promised land. And there is a sense in which the Christian between the point that they trust in Christ and declare their faith publicly to their church family and their home in heaven, there's this wilderness time, right? I got to looking at this section of Scripture, so I have been assigned Exodus 25 through 29. So those of you who know that I can preach for 35 minutes on three verses, you know how long I could go on five chapters, right? So I don't want to do that to you, and it's so I have... I've decided actually to pick some of the first part because God really laid something on my heart as I began to study this section of Scripture that it's, it regards the purpose of the tabernacle. But I want to begin actually back in Genesis. So uh, if you are going to follow along, you don't need to. I'm going to read you a few verses. But I want to, following your, your notes, we're talking about the purpose of the tabernacle, but it is set up by the book of Genesis where we are told on several occasions that God walked with his people. That must have been incredible, right? You remember the Garden of Eden. You remember how that 
Adam and Eve walked with God. In fact, it is specified in chapter 3 and verse 8, after they had sinned that the God, the Lord God, came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's, it is said in such a way that it seems to me that was probably the common experience, right? They walked with God, literally walked with God, hung out in the garden, and they had this personal presence with God because there was no sin to separate them. And so in the third chapter of Genesis, we see this incredible crisis and they sin and all of the human race is cast under the curse of sin and God comes walking in the cool of the day and they hide. And from then on, we have spent our entire existence hiding from the presence of the Lord because we know we cannot be in his presence. In fact, last week, I think it was. Didn't Pastor Marcus talk about the when, when Moses went up with the commandments and Moses said, hey, I want to see your glory. And God said, uh-uh, you cannot see my glory. No one can see my glory and live. We cannot be in the presence of God. But they walked with God. A couple of chapters later, in uh, chapter 5, we are introduced to a man named Enoch. They lived different a number of years, of course, in those early days of Genesis. Enoch lived 65 years and fathered Methuselah. That's a long time to live before you have your first child, right? And then he lived 300 more years. But here's what's interesting. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and he was a young'un when he died. Enoch walked with God... And he was not, for God took him. Such a unique passage of Scripture. That'll preach. I, I just feel like that's one of those things where Enoch walks so closely with God that one day as they're walking, I just envision it being God saying, you know what, Enoch, we're closer to my place than we are yours. Why don't we just go there, right? And God took him home. Not too far later, we're introduced to a man named Noah, who among the people of the earth was a man who was righteous, righteous and blameless in his generations. And it says, Noah walked with God. Boy, I want that. I want to be the kind of man who walks with God. And then we come over, man, I'm getting ahead of my notes here, sorry, uh, to Genesis chapter 17, and we see a man named Abram who has been given a promise by God when he had no knowledge of God. He was a pagan and God came to him and said, I want you to start walking. I'm going to give you a land and descendants and I'm going to bless you and bless all the earth in you and you just start walking. I'll let you know when you get there. And he miraculously just did. A couple of chapters, several chapters after that, we're told these words, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. In the book of Genesis, God walked with his people. Then we come to Exodus chapter 25. Let me read these verses for you from verses 8 and 9. God is describing why they're going to build the tabernacle, and he says this, Let them make me a sanctuary 
that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. In Genesis, God walked with his people. In Exodus, God expressed his desire to dwell among his people. What an incredible thing that the God of ages would decide, I want to dwell with my people. And so that's why this sanctuary, this tabernacle was designed. In the Old Testament, there were some other expressions of what it was to accomplish, but its fundamental purpose was God said, I want to dwell with my people. We're going to come a little later to exactly how that happened, but I want you to make me a holy place so I can settle down and abide with them. Then in chapter 29, and I'm not done, but that is the end of the section I've been given, chapter 29 and verse 45 I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. It was God's intention to dwell with his people. That's an incredible difference. It's not just walking with God. It is God dwelling with us. That sounds a little familiar, though, right? Because while in this Old Testament setting it was the tabernacle, there is something else in the New Testament that takes it a step further. But I want you to think about this. The tabernacle was temporary. This tent was temporary, and it was movable. Every time they set it up and every time they took it back down, they were reminded that there was something more permanent necessary. And they took it with them as an indication and a reminder that God would dwell with his people. And then eventually, they built a temple. And you remember the story of David and Solomon. And after David had gotten the kingdom all solidified, he decided, I want to build a temple, a house for God. And God said, it's not going to be you, it's going to be your son. And he gave him plans and all of this. And they built this magnificent temple which in A.D. 70 was destroyed. Now what? God wanted to dwell with his people. And so we come to this verse in John chapter 1 and verse 14, where we are reminded that now Jesus came to dwell with us. John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It is a a Greek word that refers back to that tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. He took on the tent. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came and dwelt among us. I heard one time that described as he became like us and moved into the neighborhood. I love that description, right? He became one of us. The Word became flesh. And then we killed him. And he died paying the penalty for sin for mankind and was buried and on the third day came back literally to life again. And then the later chapters of the Gospel accounts and the early verses of Acts talk about the fact that he went back to heaven so now what? 
God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle. He, he had them build a temple and he dwelled with his people and then that got destroyed. The temple got destroyed and now Jesus came and tabernacled among us. So now what? There's progress, right? Every time we see some new thing, we realize it gets more and more intimate. Now it's Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 17, that Jesus is back in heaven, but Paul told the Ephesians, this is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may, right? So he goes on to give all this stuff. But we now can see that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. Now not just in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, but he dwells in our hearts by faith. That's even more intimate than someone who you could go and spend time with when he was on earth, and then you could not be dwelling with him. You could be in another town. Now he can dwell in our hearts by faith. We have this incredible progressive intimacy, if you want to call it that. And so as we're looking at the tabernacle, I want you to remember that it was designed to draw us close to God. It was never designed to keep us separate. God has desired intimacy with us, not for his benefit. He had no need of it, but he desired us to have an intimate fellowship with him, to, to be together with him for our benefit. And throughout history, while he was walking with men, and men were walking with him, and then when he said, no, I... I want more than that. I want to dwell with you. Now, Jesus dwells in our hearts by faith. Can I, can I remind you that when Jesus left, he said to his disciples, what? I am with you to the very end of the age. Well, not physically, of course, but as he dwells in our hearts, he is with us. I woke up about 2 o'clock this morning preaching this message. I don't think it was out loud. You could ask Jody later. But, um, and I was thinking to myself, so that means when things at work are just stressful and you don't know where you're going to turn next, you are not alone even if everybody else is fighting with you because Jesus is with you. He dwells with you by faith in your heart. When you get... Uh, a financial word that stresses you out and you're not sure how you're going to adapt to this new thing. I can rest because Jesus dwells with me in my heart by faith. When, when I've faced a uh, terrible diagnosis or even just a sickness that I am just so over this thing, but I'm not, <laughs> I can rest because Jesus is dwelling with me by faith. He walks with me, and he will not be with me till the very end of the age, which means until he walks me across the threshold of heaven, Jesus is with me. He dwells with me. Can you see why I was awake getting a little excited about preaching? Can I tell you? It's still not done, right? Now we've got to go to the end of the story. So we go to Revelation chapter 21, where we see God himself will dwell with us. When we're in the new heavens and the new earth, God promises, Revelation 21, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God promised to come and pitch his tent among us. That's what the word means. God would come and pitch his tent with us. God himself. Now, I understand theologically, Jesus is God. There's no doubt. But God himself will come and dwell with us. And do you remember what, not the last chapter, but the next to the last chapter of the book says? I saw in the temple, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. No need for a temple, no need to come and assemble in what we would call the house of God, because God himself dwells with his people. Come on, somebody's got to have an amen for that, right? I mean, that's what we look forward to. That's what the whole thing of the tabernacle was about. God beginning to help us understand that he intends to dwell with his people. We will enjoy the perfect, personal, permanent, uninterrupted presence of God for all of eternity. No sin to distract us. No sin to distort the problem. It'll be like Eden except better because nothing can change it. Right? Oh. Yeah, exactly right. Praise to the Lord. That's what we're looking at in the tabernacle. Because God intends to dwell with his people. So in the meantime, how do we get set up? What's the process of getting to that dwelling? That's what the tabernacle was about. In the, in the New Testament, in Colossians chapter 2, and I didn't get this turned in in time, I didn't get these verses turned in in time, so uh, I'm going to read for you uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, because here's what we need to understand about this stuff. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It was never intended, the book of Galatians is clear, it was never intended for the law and the sacrificial system and the process of the feasts in the Old Testament, that was never intended to take away sin. In fact, we'll come to that here in a little bit. It was never intended to make our relationship with God whole. It was intended to point to Jesus, who would make that whole. It was a shadow, and the tabernacle gives us pictures. I've picked out three of them, because now in, in uh, the rest of 25 and on through 26 and 7 and 8 and 9, it's, it's all descriptions of the furnishings in the tabernacle, what it itself was made out of, the clothing for the priests, the consecration of the priest. There's so much in here I could have preached on. 
I picked out three of them. The first is in Exodus 25 and verse 10, the Ark of the Covenant. I know those who are Indiana Jones fans are most familiar with it from there. Here's how it's described. They will make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half its length, cubit and a half its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. You'll overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it. You shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You'll cast four rings of gold for it and put them on it. Uh, on its four feet, two rings on the one side, two rings on the other side. You'll make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. So this thing's kind of pretty, right? And you shall put the poles in the rings on the sides of the ark to carry by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They'll not be taken from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. So this is what the ark was about. It was there to hold the testimony of the law. Which, what happened in last Sunday's message? He came down. Oh no, that's next Sunday's message. Now you're getting a preview. Chapter 32. The law has been given. Moses has been on the mountain and he comes down in chapter 32 and they have just gone completely amok. And what did Moses do? Throws the tablets down, smashes them in pieces. God eventually gives him another set. And guess where they reside? In the Ark of the Covenant. As a reminder to the people, this is my standard. And God says, I will come and meet with you there at the Ark of the Covenant. Here's this beautiful thing, four and a half feet wide and not so much wide or long and wide and, you know, it's not huge, but it's big enough that it's something else. And it is inside the Holy of Holies where the priest went one time a year. And God came and met with him. And he interceded on behalf of the people. And he met with God. Why could he do that? Just because he was a priest? No. Because what was between the tablets that were in the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God, the mercy seat. Or, if you take that into a Greek translation, the seat of propitiation. The seat that says, this for the time being satisfies me enough that I can meet with my people. That Ark of the Covenant was an incredible uh, station inside there that most of the people would never have a chance to go and see. In fact, I've been told, and I haven't checked this out historically, but it makes sense to me that they used to tie a, a rope around the ankle of the high priest because nobody else is allowed in there but him. And what happens if he goes in there and sins while he's in there and God strikes him dead? Not like you can go in and drag him out. It was that sacred because God was meeting with his people. Here's what I love about the picture. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The satisfaction. God looks at the sacrifice of Jesus and considers his wrath against sin 
to be satisfied. When we think about the Ark of the Covenant, we should remember that Jesus serves as our mercy seat between our brokenness and God's presence. Stands the Son of God who gave himself to, to save us. Then there's the veil. I love this veil. It's, we're going to go ahead to chapter 26 now. There's this large veil that was going to hang and it would separate everybody from the holiest place, the sanctuary where the worship of God was carried out from the holy of holies where the priest would go once a year, right? Every fall, we have what we, we see on the calendar as Yom Kippur, right? The Day of Atonement. That day, once a year, the high priest would go in there, and there was a whole ceremony. We've talked about it previously. And he would go in and sprinkle blood on that uh, ark. Chapter 26, verse 31, you will make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, and it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you'll hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver, and you'll hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil will separate for you the holy place from the most holy and you'll put the mercy seat on the Ark of Testimony in the most holy place. It kept the rest of us out. The veil kept us from going in there. And if you've been around the family a little while, I know your mind is going to Matthew 27, where when Jesus died, it says this, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up a spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. It was high enough, nobody got in there and reached the top of it and tore it in half. God reached down and tore the veil because now access was granted to God. Incredible, right? Unbelievable. Because God wants to dwell with his people. And so Jesus dwells in our hearts by faith. And then the last one I want to look at is from chapter 27, and it is the, the bronze altar. I'm not even going to read all of it. I have it, I have it on here. But it's eight verses describing in great detail what this altar was like, covered in bronze. It's, it's, uh, as the other things, it's incredible. Here's what they would do. I'm going to drop down to verse 38 of chapter 29. I've, and I gave the wrong verse, so I'm sorry. I, I'll read it to you because I gave them the wrong verse for media. Chapter 29 of Exodus, verse 38. This is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Every day, two lambs, morning and evening, a lamb each, every day. To do what? To cover the sins of the people, to temporarily atone for the sins of the people, to remind them of their sinfulness and their inability to come in to the presence of God, to remind them that they had fallen short of God's intention for them. They had fallen short of his 
glory. Now I want to read for you from Hebrews chapter 10. This is an incredible, incredible connection. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Can I stop there for a second and just give you another preview of next week because we're going to talk about the golden calf? What did they make? A cow, a baby cow, when they knew it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to make a sacrifice for sin. But in these sacrifices, uh, let me see, go on, yeah, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Does that mean God was not appeased by those things? He was temporarily. He did not destroy all of mankind again. He had promised not to after the flood. But that's not ultimately what God wanted. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, what will? The will of God. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. What do you do when you finish your work? You sit down, right? Jesus went back to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Listen, we're coming this summer. We're going to begin a journey through the book of Acts that I think is probably going to take us two summers to do. And we're going to come to the stoning of Stephen and I want you to think ahead about that, too. Because what did Stephen see as he was breathing his last breath? He said, I see the heavens open and the Son of God standing. He sat down. What's he doing? He stood up to meet the first martyr in the Christian church. That's a whole separate thing. <laughs> I love these Old Testament pictures. They're not just old relics that are irrelevant to us. They point our thoughts and our attention to Jesus, who has accomplished for us what could never have been accomplished in any other fashion, because God wants to dwell with his people. That's incredible, right? Man, it just makes me so grateful. 
So I have those thoughts for you to take home with you. We are designed for a relationship with God. That's why God made us. So that we could not just walk with Him, but dwell with Him. Right now, it's by faith. And of course, the problem is sin separates us from God. It continues to do it. It continues to be why we hide. Because we know there are things that are hindering us. But Jesus is God's answer. So, listen, if you're here this morning and you have never come to the point in your life where you've acknowledged you are a sinner and you are separated from God because of that, you may not even feel like you're separated from God. You may not feel like there's anything wrong. Listen, I can assure you, if you've never repented of your sin, believed in the gospel, and received Christ, you, there is something wrong. It's the same thing that is wrong with everybody, though. That If there's any good news in that, I guess that's it, right? We are all on the same playing field. All have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can look at the glory of God. That's just, it's how we are. We are sinners by nature, and because we're sinners by nature, we sin. And it separates us from a holy God. Now, he could have just said, you know what, never mind. I'm over it. In fact, he offered that to Moses in the next chapter, in chapter 32. We'll talk about that. Pastor Marcus will next week. Uh, I'll be in Battery Park serving. But um, it's... It's pretty incredible that this holy, almighty, all-powerful God who could have just said, you know what, this is the second time they've gotten this bad. He did wipe them out the first time, except for eight of them, right, with Noah. He and his family, and God started again and said, we're going to start again with you. And here they are, same thing, humanity over and over and over again, proving to ourselves that we don't have what it takes. If you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus, I hope you understand you just don't have what it takes any more than the rest of us do. We all have fallen short. So here's what has to happen. You have to acknowledge that you're a sinner. You have to recognize that you're, you've broken God's law. You have to realize you are separated from God because of that. You can keep trying but you're not going to get there by trying any more than they did by offering an extra lamb once a day. It's not going to fix it. It might make you feel a little better. It might, for a temporary time, you know, you might feel like, okay, I'm doing better. Man, I got to church today. It is only through trusting in the finished work of Jesus that we get to be in a right relationship to God that results in dwelling with him someday. So, you acknowledge that you're a sinner, and you turn from your sin, and you believe in the gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus came, lived on this earth, lived a perfect life because he was God. He lived in full conformity to the requirements of the law. Nobody else could do that. What does Galatians tell us? The law was given as a schoolmaster to, schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It helped us see where we were wrong. It pointed out. Right? I've, I've always threatened, one of these days I'm going to do it, so if, if you're here now and you see it someday, don't. I'm going to put a wet paint sign on the wall, and then I'm going to set up a camera. 
And see how many people say, because nobody touches the walls, right? Until you see a wet paint sign. Oh, really? <laughs> There's something in us that when we see a law, a rule, we just want to break it. We recognize that's us and that Jesus lived in full conformity, perfect conformity to the law of God. Then he was killed for it. He was killed by people who, if we were there, we would have done the same thing. They didn't want him around, and so they sacrificed him on a cross. He died, and he paid the penalty for sin for everyone who would believe in him. One sacrifice for all time. He died. He paid with his own blood. Then he was buried, and on the third day, he literally came back to life again. So that's the gospel. So we repent of our sin, acknowledge that we're sinners, we believe in the gospel, and then we receive Jesus. To as many as received him, to them gave he power. He gave authority to become children of God. And God wants to dwell with his children. So... We live this life, we walk through this life, we do our best by faith as Jesus dwells with us and in us. We do our best to walk with God and someday we get to go home to heaven and we are in the personal, perfect, permanent presence of God for all of eternity. Now, if you don't want that, I don't know what to tell you. I want that. I want to be close to God. I want to draw near to Him. His holiness doesn't scare me. It astounds me, and it astounds me even more that in Jesus, that's how He sees me. It's just such an incredible picture. So, man, I, I got work to do this afternoon, right? In my own heart, thinking through this, this picture of the holiness of God how it separates, it keeps me separate from him because there's sin in my life. Now, through Jesus, when God looks at me, he sees me as perfectly righteous. Now, there's the amazing piece, right? Because when I repent of my sin and believe in the gospel and receive Christ, a transaction happens where all of my sin in God's record book gets considered applied to Jesus on the cross. And all of the righteousness that Jesus lived in perfect conformity to the lie of in perfect conformity to the law gets applied to my spiritual account so that when god looks at me he says david wilson is perfectly righteous he's one of mine he gets to come live with me dwell with me now listen you may not know me very well but it's fair to assume that i am not perfectly righteous please don't ask my wife but she will confirm it and the same is true of you. But when God looks at you in Christ, he sees you as perfectly righteous because of one sacrifice for all time. Man, if you're here today, we're going to close here in just a couple of minutes. We're going to sing a song together. And uh, if you're here and have never repented of your sin and believed in the gospel, you've never trusted in the finished work of Christ, man, I would love to see that happen today. There are going to be folks standing down here at the front. If you want to come and talk to them about that, they would be happy to share with you how you can know your sins are forgiven. You are on your way to spend eternity with God in his perfect personal presence. 
They would love to do that. Maybe you just want somebody to pray with you about something else. Maybe there's something going on in your, in your life and you're facing a trial and you just would like a little prayer support. Man, I had something happen in just this week with me, a, a physical trial or a potential one, and I, I wrote to one of my prayer warriors and I said, get your gang together, and he wrote to about 17 other people. And many of them are sitting here this morning because a lot of them have come and said, I love, I love seeing that God answered prayer because I had sickness at my house this week, and I said, I don't want to miss Sunday. Please ask God to give me a pass this time around. <laughs> and he did. And so here I am, and I'm so grateful. It, it may be something like that, right? These people are here to pray with you. That's why they've come. Please don't make it feel awkward. You don't have to feel awkward about it, I mean. It's not, it's not like that. But, uh, man, Come, let's do business with God if you need to, and, but let's sing. Let's sing with hearts of rejoicing for what God has done. Come on, guys, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song, and I'll come back with our benediction. Father, I'm so thankful for the reality in Scripture that you want to dwell with your people, and you are working throughout history, throughout time, through your son Jesus, so that that can be possible. I'm grateful that we can have Jesus dwell in our hearts by faith. Lord, I pray for the, the one or more that might be here or might be listening uh, that for whom that's never happened. Lord, I pray that they would respond to the truth and the message of the gospel today, uh, that they might have the hope that is ours in Christ. And Lord, for all of us, I pray that we would just rejoice in what you have accomplished how you've made it so clear throughout Scripture your intention to dwell with your people. We look forward to that day with such intensity we can hardly contain ourselves, and yet you've left us here for now, and you have work for us to do. You want us to honor you with our lives, and so we commit ourselves to doing that even as we close this service. In Jesus' name, amen.